Hey, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 20. And while you're turning there, have you ever experienced the situation where suddenly your adrenaline begins to rush? Your heart starts beating uncontrollably. The ability to think clearly seems to elude you. And even your mouth and your tongue begin to swell. What am I describing? Well, the onset of a stroke, heart attack, uh, a new variant? (laughs) No. Actually, what I'm describing is what most of us go through when it becomes evident that we are in a situation where we're going to have to answer a tough question about our Christian faith. Oh, man. Have you ever had a case of spiritual stage fright like that? Well, I I want to reassure you in a sense this morning that you're not in it alone, but, but boy, let me tell you, one of the most scary scriptures you'll find in the entire Bible for a lot of believers in Christ is found in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. There we read this, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. See, this is part of our job description as believers in Christ. We need to be capable of answering hard questions. Now, here's the good news. The thing that I love about Jesus is this, and there's a little bad news mixed in there as well. He will never ask you or me to do anything that either he is not willing to do or has not done himself. Now, that can give us a lot of comfort and, well, maybe a little bit of a challenge because when it comes to answering tough questions, you know, Jesus not only exhorts us to be able to do this in his word, he even gives us an example of how it's done. And this morning, uh, in a study we could call Jesus on the Hot Seat, We're going to see Jesus tackle the very same categories of tough questions about the Christian faith that you and I face today. Three kinds of questions we're going to see Jesus assaulted with, uh, with the motivation of taking him down, in a sense. The first are political questions. Have you ever been asked a political question about your faith? What do you born-agains think about abortion? Or what do you born-agains think about what's going on in Ukraine? How do we answer those kind of questions in a way that's effective? We're going to see Jesus take on one of the hot-button issues of his day, and quite frankly, maybe even of our day, and how he turned that around in a powerful way to put the focus where it really belongs. We'll learn how to do that this morning. Secondly, we'll see Jesus tackle tough spiritual questions. If you've ever been in a conversation with someone who felt like they had the killer question that is definitely going to shut down every born-again Christian they've ever encountered, well, Jesus is going to get a variety of that presented to him today. And as we see how he deals with it, we'll learn a thing or two about how to deal with it. And we're also going to see, in a sense, Jesus turning the table. That when it comes to tough questions, maybe the toughest questions that we will ever face in this life are questions that are asked by skeptics, but actually questions that are asked by the Savior himself. We'll see the toughest question Jesus put forth to those who were trying to bring him down when they really should have been lifting him up. So if you've ever been in a place 
where you felt a day late and a dollar short, as far as the fine art of giving a reason for the hope that's within you, good news for you today. Jesus is going to give us a crash course and lead us by not just exhortation, but example into this powerful area of ministry. Well, we pick things up in Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 20, we read this. So they watched him and sent spies pretending to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. I call your attention to those words, they watched him. Jesus was being watched like a hawk. Now, if you are a born-again believer in Christ and you're out there in the secular world, you know exactly what that's like. Isn't it amazing how we discover that non-believers are experts at Christian conduct? They are experts, if you will, on how a Christian ought to walk their talk. Everybody else in the office gets away with, you know, taking stuff home and, you know, being kind of uh, sticky-fingered with office supplies. You do that. Hey, don't the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not steal. Man, why are you so tough on Well, there's a good reason why they're tough on They want to see if what you say about your walk with God is real or not. People are watching, and they were watching Jesus like a hawk. Now, understand something. They were watching Jesus in order to discredit him. And at this point, we could hardly blame them from their point of view. After all, Jesus has come into Jerusalem. This is his last Passover in Jerusalem. The shadow of the cross, as we often say, is looming large on his horizon. But his enemies certainly didn't know that. All they knew is this guy had come into Jerusalem and turned things upside down, literally, when it came to the temple. He took the money changers and the sacrifice sellers, the the individuals who had realized an undeniable truth of life. There's an awful lot of money to be made in religion if you have no ethics. Individuals were ripping off people's sincere desire to worship God by jacking up the prices of approved sacrifices and changing out those pagan Roman coins for the temple shekel with a little care and handling fee attached. Jesus had no tolerance for it. He literally drove them out of the temple, and this wasn't his first rodeo, if you will, when it came to this. He had done it twice at the beginning of his ministry and here again at the end. You better believe when you get involved with people and you start messing not only with their religion but their money, Things are going to get pretty intense, but Jesus didn't turn down the volume. They questioned his authority. Who gave you the right to do this? He says, I'll answer your question. The answer one of mine, John the Baptist, who gave them authority? They're like, ugh, that's a tough question. If we say uh, it was from men, the people will stone us. They think John was a prophet. If we say it was from God, he'll say, why don't we believe him? Well, we don't know. Jesus said, well, neither will I answer your question. And then Jesus even takes it deeper. He talked about a parable from Isaiah chapter 5 about how Israel was God's vineyard and how God was looking for good fruit for Israel, but only found thorns in that vineyard and no fruit at all. In fact, looking for holiness, all he found was corruption and compromise. Well, Jesus in his parable was basically saying, you know what? (laughs) You are in the Bible. You are in the Old Testament, but not where you think. You are that bad vineyard. You're going to get torn down before you know it. You know, and they were like, may it never be. Someone never even think of that. And Jesus says, well, then why does the scripture say 
that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever stumbles on this stone is going to be broken. Whoever it falls on is going to be crushed to powder. <laughs> you know, if you like Jesus meek and mild, traipsing through the daisy field with a lammy on your shoulder, you don't like Luke chapter 20 very much. Because Jesus was full on confronting the status quo. And so we can understand why they were watching him, looking for any kind of fault or flaw. You know, it's interesting, though. It's another one of those examples of uh, Joseph's famous statement from the Old Testament. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because believe it or not, by watching Jesus and inspecting him up close and personal like this, they were fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, at least in terms of a type. When the Passover lamb would be sacrificed, did you know what would lead into the sacrifice of that Passover lamb in the official Passover Seder celebration? Five days where that lamb would be inspected for any fault or flaw or defect. Even his enemies, unknowns to them, they wanted to bring Jesus down, but they were really fulfilling the Old Testament, even as we speak. Now, they sent spies who pretended to be righteous. They might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Uh, these spies, we are told in the book of Mark chapter 12, and, and one of the things I love about the fact that we have four eyewitness biographies of the life of Jesus. Some of them cover similar turf, but each of them has a different nuance to offer us, a, a bit more vividness, if you will. Remember those old analog TVs back then? You know, they weighed like about 900 pounds when you had to move them. And you know, maybe you're old enough to remember even like rabbit ears sitting on the top of them. Uh, you know, you, you look at an analog TV picture in this day and age, you go, how did we ever watch that? Because we've got, you know, I mean, 4D and 5K and all these other wonderful things. And, and you know, the, the, the quality of technology has just gone through there. Well, when we look at the life of Jesus and we are able to look at it through all four Gospels, it's like going from analog to uh, just 4D. You know, just the, the, the clarity here is marvelous. And we're told in Mark chapter 12 that these spies were made up of an interesting conglomerate, if you will. Part of the spies were disciples of the Pharisee. Now, that tells us something about them. They were the young bucks. They, they, they were the individuals who were coming up the ranks. They wanted to earn their spurs, if you will, by dealing with this upstart from Galilee. And, you know, and, uh, let's face it, in our walk with God, there's such a thing as young man's disease. Uh, you know, where, you know, you kind of think you know it all and you're ready to take on the world. And, you know, you uh, kind of have that ready, uh, shoot, aim kind of uh, approach to sharing your faith. And they had the same kind of zeal and enthusiasm. They're going to defend their traditions of their fathers. But we're also told there was another group of disciples there. They were the Herodians. The Herodians were the people that were trying to curry favor with the Herods. They hated people that the Romans had put in power as the governors over their territory. They were the original, well, you got to go along to get along, guys. So here you have these Pharisees who prided themselves on being separated from the world. You have the Herodians who prided themselves on sucking all they could get out of the world. And yet they had one thing in common. They both saw Jesus as a problem. There's an old proverb out of the Middle East goes something like this. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
they both realized that Jesus had to go or they were going to have to go, and they decided they weren't going anywhere. Then they asked him, verse 21, saying, Teacher, we know you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, <laughs> I understand a couple things going on here. Notice the intro to their killer question. It was greased with butter. They were buttering Jesus up. Did they think any of these things were true about Jesus? Probably not, but the people did. And so they were kind of catering to the people. Hey, we're one of you. You know, we know you say and teach rightly. You don't show personal favoritism. It literally means to look upon the face of another individual. Jesus, when you speak, you don't look to see if people are falling asleep or if they're nodding or if they're frowning. You just lay it on the line, man. I just love that, that about you. You teach the way of God in truth. One commentator said they were reaching out to Jesus with a velvet glove that, that hid a corrupted fist. That's how they were approaching Jesus. They wanted to take him down, but first they wanted to butter him up. And, and if people, uh, you know, come to you and say, well, you know, you're so wonderful and you're not like those other religious people out there. And, oh, you know, aren't you? get ready for the other shoe to drop. It's coming. Now notice what they ask. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? <laughs> when they dropped that on Jesus, he probably looked on their face and they probably looked like the cat that ate the canary because they thought they had him. Why did they think they had him? Because there were only two alternatives in their mind in the answering this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, they probably thought if Jesus was like us, he's taken the spiritual temperature around here. He knows that everybody hates being under the steel-reinforced sandal of imperial Rome. Uh, they know that, that they have seen atrocities that had been committed by the Romans, and that every time they paid their taxes to Caesar, they were literally paying the salaries of the brute squads that were sent out to make their life miserable. How in the world could Jesus possibly say, yeah, go ahead and pay your taxes to Rome without losing a huge part of his audience? Oh, we got him there. If, if, he, if he goes pro-Rome, paying taxes... His popularity is over. And that was the big thing they were worried about. Again, another parallel account of all of this. You go to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, leading into these events, his enemies said, we've lost. The whole world's gone after him. They had to do something about Jesus' popularity. And so they saw this question at the least as a wedge issue that would separate Jesus from the popular opinion of the day. But what if Jesus decided to play to the popular opinion of the day? What if he said, no, don't pay taxes to those horrible individuals. God's going to judge them someday. Right on. They could have run right over to Pontius Pilate and said, Pilate, you got a problem down here. This guy, they're welcome to the son of David. They think he's a king. And now he's telling people not to pay their taxes. <laughs> Pilate could do the dirty work for them. And so, you know, it's like the unanswerable question, right? 
It's like the classic example of someone asking the senator of Prescott, Senator, how long has it been since you stopped beating your wife? Is there any good answer to that question? They thought they had Jesus right where they wanted him. But then in verse 23, Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? <laughs> now, when Jesus says, why do you test me? Understand, some people just think that Jesus was being exasperated here, that he was sort of responding sharply here. I just think Jesus was probably just shaking his head. Who do you think you're dealing with? Could you imagine getting into a debate with someone who knew the thoughts and intentions of your heart? That's some pretty significant intel to have with you, right? You know, who do you think you're talking to? Do you think you're really pulling the wool over my eyes by saying, oh, teacher, you, you know, don't show favoritism. You teach the way of God and truth, and you don't, you don't care about what anybody thinks, and you teach rightly and all this stuff. You don't think any of that. And it must have been kind of a, a, an experience to be one of Jesus' antagonists and to look in his eyes and see him looking back at you and looking right through you and looking right down to the heart of you and saying things like, why do you test me? In essence, he was saying, you know, it, it's really hard for you to kick against the goats. You keep trying to do this, and you always fall flat on your face. But having said that, Jesus said, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, this denarius coin, a denarius was essentially a day laborer's average wage. It was like minimum wage in, in our day. If you had a minimum wage job and you worked eight hours a day, they'd give you a denarius coin for that. And, and that was the coin of currency that you would use to pay your Roman taxes. To add insult to injury, this denarius coin had an image inscribed on it in that day and age of Tiberius Caesar. And not only set, had a picture of him, it had his name, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, the son of Augustus Caesar. Now, there are those who think, well, Augustus was kind of like his last name or something. But no, Augustus was not just a title, it was a description. It was a way of saying in Latin, divine, Caesar was God. And so every time they looked at this, if you were a Jew, try to imagine this double whammy. A... The Ten Commandments say, don't make any graven images. B, it says, don't make any graven images to bow down and worship him. That's what a denarius coin represented. It was an in-your-face disgrace, if you will, to every Jewish person. But Jesus said, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? The answer said, Caesar's. Then he said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. They could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Now, notice what Jesus does here, and this brings it back to us being asked tough questions politically. And when I said, you know, this still is an issue in our day and age, I meant it. Every once in a while, a wind blows through the church that goes something like this. You know, we are only to obey the government insofar as the government obeys God. And the government, you know, pays for abortion on demand. They support Planned Parenthood. They support all kinds of bizarre and degrading practices. 
Maybe the government is supporting a particular war effort that you don't have to agree with. I've heard that one too. Therefore, we as believers in Christ are under no obligation to pay our taxes. I've, I've heard people start to share this, and it even gets weirder. Uh, there was a group that tried to get a foothold in this church not too long ago that would invite people to go to a special secret meeting in Phoenix where you are going to find out that the federal income tax is really unconstitutional. And if you have their documents in your hand, when the IRS comes and says, why haven't you paid your tax, you can show them this and they'll go, oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, you can do that and you can do that in faith and maybe the end result is you're going to have a nice prison ministry when they toss you in jail. But here's the deal. The, the Bible says pay your taxes. In Romans chapter 13, when the Apostle Paul said, for this reason you pay taxes, because the government has a minister of God to you. God is the one who instituted government in order to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. Uh, government does us a great service. When Paul wrote those words, do you know who the Roman emperor was? It was Nero. Well, the most cruel and barbaric and bizarre individuals you could ever name. Paul didn't say, look, don't sit around and try to evaluate Nero's spirituality. Pay your taxes. Do it as unto the Lord. And he'll be the one who judges who's who and what's what. So, you know, this is a live issue even in our day. So don't let somebody snooker you into one of those things, unless, of course, you do want to have an inside prison ministry someday, and we'll come visit you. But the other thing is this. Notice, and this usually gets left out on this. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render unto God the things that are God's. And I've seen pastors launch out on a thing about, oh, that's why you got to tithe. And if you don't tithe your 10%, not of the net, but of the gross, then God's not going to bless you. And, and, you know, let's do an offering right now so that you can have the opportunity to do that. You know, I've seen people get into that. Render to God the things that are God's. But you know, when Jesus was talking about rendering to God the things that are God's, he wasn't talking about finances. What does God want you to render to him anyway? Well, what is God looking for? Well, here's a newsflash for you. It's not necessarily the mean green. In the book of Micah, chapter 6 and verse 8, you want to know what God requires of you? It says, the Lord, uh, again, uh, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Here's what he requires of you, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, to make sure your morality and your spirituality line up, to love mercy, to not look down on other people or judge other people or, or maybe despise other people because you see your sins on them. To love the fact that God has mercy on you and to show that love by being merciful to others and to walk humbly with your God. Just to make it your business each day to walk hand in hand with Jesus. And to keep it that simple and focused. You do that, you've rendered unto God. God says, you got it. That's all I ask. But notice, this is so important when it comes to tough political questions. And we do get tough political questions. One of the toughest political questions we face in this day and age 
is, you know, you born-agains are pro-life. Why in the world are you pro-life? Well, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked that question. And I don't dodge it because I, quite honestly, I know this will offend some people, but here you go. I don't see how anyone can be a Bible-believing Christian and not be pro-life. Because the Bible tells us something really, really important. In Psalm 139, King David said, Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and the days which were ordained for me when there was not yet one of them. I could go into a litany of scriptures where God recognizes not just the reality, but the sanctity of preborn life. That God does not recognize a difference in utero, out of utero, as far as the dignity of human life, and that every human life is worth preserving. Yeah, we could go into a conversation about all of this, and I have. You know, I can show you scripturally why that's the case. I can even show you logically why that's the case. Let me ask you a question if you're still in doubt on this issue. If you go, well, nobody really knows when life began. Let me ask you this question. When did your life begin? You see, the only difference between you and me and a fertilized egg is what? Time and nurture. That's it. Everything that makes you, you, was present at that moment of conception in the womb. And any scientist looking at a conceptus, if you will, a zygote, that first part of your life where the sperm and the egg came together, would not look at that and say, that's an inanimate object, like a rock. They'd say, no, that's a living thing. Clearly, scientifically, that's living. It's a living being. What kind of being is it? At that moment of conception, that being has 46 chromosomes just like you and me. And all the genetic information that makes you and me, even to our hair or lack thereof, was contained in the 46 chromosomes that were there at that moment of conception. This is not disputable scientifically. And you can lay out all those things, and you can put a pro-choicer back on their heels, and go, oh, man, you really thought about all this. And you know what? You can win the battle and lose the war. Why? Because, catch this, God did not call us to win arguments. He called us to win souls. And we can be so on top of it on our, say, answer to that tough question from a biblical point of view, and there's certainly a place and a time for that. But unless we bring it back around like Jesus did to this, so where do you stand with the God who knew you from your mother's womb? Do you know his love in your life? Do you, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know why we should take the Bible's message seriously about this? Unless you get down to the real issues, the heart of the matter, if you want to use that term, well, you're just spinning your wheels. And you can pat yourself on the back for winning another argument but if that person listening to you ends up farther away from Christ than when they started, well, <laughs> you missed it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render it to God the things that are God's. God wants to have a relationship with you. And unless we bring that tough question back to that relationship, we've missed it. They could not catch him in his words. Dang, who would have thought of that? in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. The word marveled there carries the idea of being dumbstruck. They just stood there with their mouths open. They didn't know whether to spit or wind their watches at that point. They were absolutely convinced 
that they had Jesus and Jesus had them. Well, <laughs> standing nearby, watching these young bucks take a shot were some more experienced individuals who probably were going, oh, look at these guys. What a bunch of yokels. Got to commend their, their spirit. Got to commend their enthusiasm, but out of the way, boys. Let's, let us show you how it's done. Verse 27, then some of the Sadducees who denied there's a resurrection. Now, you know who the Sadducees are by this time. You've been with us in our study. They were the religious aristocrats of that day. They traced their lineage back to Zadok, the high priest, who anointed Solomon king and who ministered to King David. That's where the term Sadducee comes from. It's a co-option of the idea of a Zadokite, if you will. And because they had this lineage, if you will, kind of like you run into some people who brag about their, their forefathers coming over on the Mayflower, that sort of thing. You know how far back their ancestry goes, or they tell you they're related to royalty or things like that, the blue bloods, you know. That was their kind of mentality. And because they had this connection, you see, they were very wealthy, very highly placed in Jewish culture. If you go on a, on a trip to Israel, and we're going to be planning one for about a year from now, now that Israel's reopening again, so file that away in your, your, your mind. But in Jerusalem, one of the things that you see are the excavated ruins of the villa of Caiaphas, the high priest, who was the Sadducee of Sadducee. This guy, boy, you want to talk about a nice pad. Even after 2,000 years and Roman conquest and everything else, you see these amazing mosaic floors that they had and the, the indoor uh, uh, hot spa that they had there. And I mean, just everything you could possibly imagine was at their beck and call. They had the status. They had the lineage. They had the intellectual cachet of going to the right schools and the right initials after their name. They were the religious liberals, if you will, of that day because with all that, they said, no, there's really no such thing as a resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They thought the Old Testament, well, you know, these prophets and stuff, some, so much of what they say is kind of inconvenient. So we only believe in the first five books of Moses. That's where we take our stand. That's what the Sadducees were all about. They deny there's a resurrection. And they came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Whoa. For a lot of us, we just get stuck right there, right? Because we go, what in the world is this talking about? Well, believe it or not, in Exodus chapter 25, you want to read about it, you can go in depth on it. This was called the law of the brother-in-law. If you had a brother who married a woman and that brother died without having children, the idea of preserving family lineage in Israel was of utmost importance. And so you would be obligated to take his widow to be your wife, and the first child you had together will be considered the son of your deceased brother. Now, we can probably imagine some very interesting interpersonal scenarios that would come out of all of that. If your brother started dating someone and you weren't too hot on her, you'd probably be all over breaking that one up, man, because you might end up stuck with her. You know, before you would sweep right on Tinder or something like, oh, no, 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 I've heard something about her. You know, so this was a legitimate law in Israel. It was a legitimate part of the law of Moses. And so no dispute on the fact that this was a part of Jewish life. 
But here's where it gets interesting. Verse 29, now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as a wife, and he died childless. Then the third also took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the <laughs> resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her. <laughs> this is great. This bumpkin from Galilee comes down here. Sure, he did good with the Pharisees and the Herodians, but he wasn't ready for us. We've tried this one out. We focus grouped it. We regularly beat the Pharisees about the head and shoulders who believe in a resurrection with this very same question. And they get mad and they call us names and they run home to their mamas. This guy's not going to do any better because we got him. Now, did this ever happen, A? No, this is a hypothetical. And if some non-Christian comes to you with a hypothetical, you know, saying, well, you know, I heard of this and this and this. Can God make a rock so big he can't live? That's a hypothetical question, right? You know, this is a hypothetical. It never happened in history. And when people ask me hypotheticals, you know, sometimes I'm really tempted to say, yeah, and if cows could fly, we'd all need steel umbrellas. <laughs> but I have to live in reality, right? And so do you. Let's talk reality here. We do not know that this ever happened. If it did happen, to quote the noted theologian Levi Lesko, what in the world was this woman feeding these guys? <laughs> oh, for seven. Or maybe she was so tough to live with, they all just checked out anyway. Who knows? But they throw this out and they say, okay, you know, heaven's going to be a weird place. Because you're going to have one woman with seven husbands, which was unthinkable to the default male chauvinist sensibilities that the average person that day had. Man with seven wives, well, you know, we can imagine that. A wife with seven husbands? Are you nuts? It was absurd, crazy, just like your hope of a resurrection. You know, it's just funny how many intelligent people will make statements like this and just think they've gotten the ultimate killer question. Now, notice something. They're not looking for an answer to their question, right? They, the, the, the answer to this question is kind of shut up, he explained. Uh, you know, they, they, they aren't looking for doubt. Oh, could you please explain how this works to me, Jesus? No, it was like, this is my killer question. I remember uh, a few years back, I was listening to uh, the noted broadcaster Larry King in his late night show. And some well-meaning Christian called up Larry and wanted to convert him, you know. And Larry King just cut the guy off. And he says, all right, the one question no one's ever been able to answer me. Who created God? And then he moved on. Now, when he threw that out, he wasn't saying, oh, please, all you born-agains out there, call in with an answer to the question, who created God? No, this was his conversation stopper. This was his way of saying, no more or you're going to get even worse. And this is a really important thing for us to understand when we get involved with someone asking us tough questions about the Christian faith. Oftentimes, they're not looking for an answer. That's why it is so important to ask a diagnostic question, especially when someone throws out a hypothetical like this. Ask them this question. If I were to answer this question to your satisfaction, would you consider giving your life to Jesus? 
Now, my experience when I ask non-Christian skeptics, antagonists that question, 99.9% of the time, I'm still holding out one-tenth of one percent in case it ever happens. But 99% of the time, they will say, no. Well, at that point, I take a step back and I say, so the issue here isn't a lack of information, right? The issue here is just a lack of will. It's not that you can't believe in Jesus that's the issue here. It's that you won't believe in Jesus that's the issue here. Is that really a rational position to take? Let me just let them chew on that for a while. So they weren't looking for an answer, but boy, does Jesus have one for them. Jesus answered and said, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor are, can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, this is a whole study in of itself. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. If you want more data, call us on A Reason for Hope. Get online. We'll answer your question in depth. But what Jesus was saying is this, and it's really interesting. Another one of those parallel accounts we find in Matthew 22, the account of this. Jesus begins by saying, do you not err because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? <laughs> what? How dare you say that to us? We're the experts. We run the temple. We spend all of our time patting ourselves on the back for our deep and abiding intellect. How dare you, bumpkin from Galilee, say we don't know the scriptures or the power of God. But that was their issue. And I can't tell you how many times I've run into, quote-unquote, intellectuals, professorial types, who considered themselves experts on spiritual matters, but really didn't know the scriptures or the power of God. Uh, you know, I, I can remember being in a class at the U of A where a professor boldly asserted, well, you know, the idea of a resurrection, the idea of heaven, that's clearly a New Testament concept. It's not even taught at all in the Old Testament. There is no hope of heaven in the Old Testament. I raised my hand. I said, uh, well, then what do you make of Psalm 23 where King David said, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? This prof looked at me and said, I never thought of that. I said, think about it. But think about it before you start speaking authoritatively next time. You see, these people thought they had it all together, but they didn't know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, here's the elephant in the living room. Jesus said in the resurrection, they're neither married nor given in marriage. And some people freak out about all this. Now, those who have unhappy marriages don't freak out about this. The inside, they're kind of rejoicing, going, oh, man, that's good. I get out of it in a few years. But say you're happily married. Say, you know, your, your spouse is the delight. You're like, we're not going to be married in heaven. You know, we're going to need name tags in heaven. I'm not even going to know my husband. What are you talking about here? They're not married or given in marriage. No, there's going to be a new, whole new set of relationship rules in heaven that we are all going to be a part of. In a sense, the best answer I can give to you, and we can go into more depth on it, is you're trading up. Because when you get to heaven, guess what? You get to receive and relate love perfectly without any kind of fault or flaw. You're going to be absolutely capable of loving your current spouse and everybody else for the very love of Jesus Christ. And that will be an upgrade. 
And guess what? You will be married when you're in heaven. Guess you're the bride of Christ if you belong to the Lord. You will be married. You'll be married to Jesus. And guess what? I don't think your spouse will object to that one bit. Your relationship with your spouse is going to be better in heaven than it is right now. You're not going to lose anything. You're going to gain everything. And so Jesus lays that out. He goes, look, when people have eternal life, they're not going to need the contrivances of marriage that we have right now because there's going to be no need for reproduction. There's going to be no need for having children. It's going to be a whole new ball game there. But even Moses showed, verse 37 in the burning bush passage, that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, a couple things. Again, the parallel accounts. In Matthew, it emphasizes, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how he introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. If Moses, if uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead like dogs and had turned to worm food and didn't exist anymore, like the Sadducees said, God would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus said, all live to him. The parallel account of Mark, he looks at them and said, you've made a serious error. <laughs> Gosh, could you imagine Jesus looking at you? And saying that, you missed it. You've missed it. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. But after that, they dared not question you. Now, remember, the scribes were just after Jesus, but they'd never been able to answer the killer Sadducee question about the resurrection. And they go, Somebody answered their question. I can't believe it. Way to go. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So for five minutes, they were pro Jesus. Yeah, well, all that other stuff we don't like, but boy, he really got them there. So, someone comes to you with a hard spiritual question. Usually they're hypotheticals. You know, like, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? You ever had that one thrown at you? You know, some people are like, oh, man. This, you know, because after all, you know, Luke chapter 1 and verse 27 says, nothing's impossible with God. So, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? You know, there's an answer to that question. I know it's a conversation stopper. I know it's designed just to say, you yokel, evangelical, go back to your church and don't ever bring this stuff out here again. But there's an answer to that question. Did you know when the Bible says nothing is impossible with God, what it's saying is nothing that is possible to do is beyond God's power to do. But that doesn't mean God can do silly things, nor does it mean that God can do immoral things. In the book of Hebrews, for instance, we are told it is impossible for God to lie. So when that question gets asked, I merely say to the skeptic, yeah, it's very interesting. You know, God can do anything that is possible, but God can't do the absurd because he's not an absurd God. Making a rock so big he can't lift it, that's absurd. Five-sided triangle, that's absurd. So tell me. Where do you stand with this God who can do everything, including seeing the condition of your heart? Once again, Jesus brings it back to the reality of Scripture. And I think that's so important. When someone comes to you with a hypothetical like that, you know, and, and just the, well, what about this? And what about this Bible contradiction? And, and so on. First of all, ask the diagnostic question. If I were to answer that question to your satisfaction, would you consider becoming a Christian? But secondly, if someone really persists and wants an answer about it, make sure you don't offer your take. 
Share God's word. That's what Jesus did. You err because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Do you realize that the Bible says that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword? Do you realize the Bible says that God's word never returns to him void? In a situation like that, if we can steer people back and even share a simple verse of scripture, we've accomplished our mission because God's going to honor that word. Maybe you'll never be there to see it. But who knows? Maybe like a gospel time bomb, it's going to go off in that person's heart someday and bring them to a saving relationship with Jesus. Finally, Jesus turns the tables on them, and he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? You see, in that culture, a father was always above his son. You know, we, we see these businesses, so-and-so and sons. That tells us something. So-and-so was the one who built the business. The sons are gravy training. You know, there, there's a difference between so-and-so and the sons. So the idea of a son maybe achieving similar stature to a father, like Solomon and David did, is possible. But for some son to be greater than his father, how could that be? Secondly, the Lord said to my Lord, King David called Messiah Lord in Psalm 110 and verse 1. Even more heavy, God calls Messiah Lord in that passage. How can that be true? How can David have a son biologically and yet call him Lord eternally? One way to solve the problem. Jesus, God in human flesh. Isaiah chapter 9 says, Behold, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Only in Jesus does Psalm 110 and verse 1 make any sense. And so Jesus basically said to, to them, chew on that one a while. But here's the key thing. You know, when it comes to tough questions, and again, as a recovering adult child of an attorney, I, I have to admit, I love a good argument. I love a good debate. I mean, I was raised for debates. I had to present legal briefs to get the car keys growing up, for goodness sake. <laughs> I love that sort of thing. But I've learned something over the years. You can win the argument and lose the soul if you're not careful. You can be so right in your argumentation that you're wrong in terms of actually pushing someone farther from a relationship with God unless, unless, unless you bring the whole debate, the whole journey, the whole hard question back to the person of Jesus. And here's the cure for spiritual stage fright. You, you want to be over that? You, you want to just go joyfully in your day? Oh, man, I hope someone asked me a hard question. Here's how you do it. Decide in advance that if any hard question is asked of you, your agenda, your priority is to focus the conversation back on the person of Jesus Christ. You see, when we do that, a couple of wonderful things happen. Number one, chances are you know a little bit more about Jesus than that skeptic who's talking to you. You're definitely in a position of advantage. Secondly, you're playing on your own home court, right? You're not going to out-secularize somebody into the kingdom of God, but the word of God is powerful, and Jesus is there, and Jesus is so committed to saving that skeptic, he died on a cross for them. 
The Holy Spirit is there to convict that person of sin and righteousness and judgment. And all we have to do is focus in on the person of Jesus and let God do his thing. You ask, how many people you saved in your ministry? Man, I've never saved anybody. But I've told a lot of people who can save them. That's your agenda. That's my agenda. That's Jesus' agenda here. Oh, let's go boldly into this world, looking for those opportunities to tell this lost and dying, confused and clueless, upside-down world about the Savior who can answer the ultimate questions. Why am I here? What makes me valuable as a human being? What's the meaning of life? What lies after this life, and how can I know? All those ultimate questions are answered in Jesus. Lord, thank you for giving us these answers. Thank you, Lord, for giving us such a beautiful picture in your word of your life and your love. And, and Lord, the fact that you deal with the same kind of struggles and the same kind of stubborn and obstinate people, the same kind of hidden agenda meisters and the same cocky individuals who think they've got everything figured out and have dismissed you that we do. But the ultimate answer is pointing people back to you. And that's all we want to do. Even as a church, we want it to be about you. We don't want it to be about us and our doctrine, and our, 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 our distinctives and our directives. And we, we just want people to meet you and, and to encounter you. And, and if we make it more than that, if we make it about hymns versus choruses, if we make it about passing an offering or just having agape boxes, if we make it about a hundred other things politically, we've missed it because it's all about you, Lord. You told the church at Philadelphia that you gave them an open door and no one can shut it because they had a little strength. They relied on the power of your spirit. They kept your word first and foremost in their minds, have not denied your name. They were all about you, Jesus. Individually and as a church, please give us the grace to make it all about you. Thank you for being the answer to all of our questions, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.